morning. Our New Testament reading is from Ephesians 5, verses 17 through chapter 6, verse 9. It's page 153 in your pew Bible. Therefore, do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is, and do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit, addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord with your heart, giving thanks always for everything to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord, for the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its savior. Now, as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ does the church, because we are members of his body. Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound, and I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church. However, let each one of you love his wife as himself, and let the wife see that she respects her husband." Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Honor your father and mother. This is the first commandment with a promise, that it may go well with you and that you may live long in the land. Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. Bondservants, obey your earthly masters with fear and trembling, with a sincere heart as you would Christ. Not by the way of eye service as people pleasers, but as bond servants of Christ, doing the will of God from the heart, rendering service with a good will as to the Lord and not to man, knowing that whatever good anyone does, this he will receive back from the Lord, whether he is a bond servant or is free. Masters, do the same to them and stop your threatening, knowing that he who is both their master and yours is in heaven and that there is no partiality with him. Thank you very much for reading so clearly for us. Let's pray then as we sit, as we ask for God's help uh, together today. Father, we praise you that you are a speaking God, and we ask that you would make us a listening people. Fill us with your spirit today, that we might be those who love the Lord Jesus and see the gospel of his grace, affect and in fact, every part of our lives. Uh, Help us to hear your word and to take it to heart because we ask it for Jesus' sake. Amen. I Want to Break Free is a song that came out in 1984 by the group Queen. It took the world by storm and still is known as the best-known track or one of them from the 1980s. We'll all have heard it on the radio or in the mall, but what you won't necessarily have seen is the accompanying video. It's designed to shock. It features the Queen Band in a small suburban house in the northern city of Leeds in England. 
It's very early morning. As Freddie Mercury wakes up, he begins vacuuming the floor. But what's interesting is he's wearing spotted leotards, pink earrings, tight-fitting sleeveless pink tops, and sizable false breasts in a black leather miniskirt. With high-heeled shoes, he sings the song, I Want to Break Free. And one by one, different members of the house, all dressed in women's clothes, wake up and join in the band. The song is really an anthem for the revolution, a liberation from traditional, stereotypical roles, a rebellion against the Christian family. For here, in a miniskirt and high-heeled boots, is a man who is a woman. He's in a skirt but has a mustache. And what is it that we want to break free from but the prison of the family and the roles within the family that God has given us to enjoy? The point behind the song is really the point behind the cultural revolution that is raging around us. Roles are to be blurred, but more than that, abolished. There is now to be a moral anarchy. This is the spirit of our age. The mood is one of revolutionary, radical individualism. I will express myself as I want to, and I will be who I will be. This is not a culture of responsibility, but of liberation and rights. Yet into this, God speaks. And over the last few weeks, we've seen that God has intervened in history to achieve the eternal plan he has for us. Through the saving death of Jesus at the cross, as his blood was shed for us, as our guilt was taken away, and through his mighty resurrection from the dead, Jesus has secured a brand new humanity. And the essential mark of that new humanity is to be unity. And Paul is clear, now that we have been united into God's new family, Jesus' new nation, the body of Christ, the people of God's. Everything we do is to center in and around keeping the unity of the faith through the bond of peace in a spirit-filled, grace-shaped, Christ-honoring, other-person-centered love. Last week, we saw in verse 18 that key command be filled by the Holy Spirit. And we saw that just as alcohol will affect the drunk, double vision, blurred speech, reduced capacities, so the Spirit is to affect and infect us all. This being filled with the Spirit is to be a continuous thing. Go on being filled by the Holy Spirit, says Paul. And it is to be a corporate thing. It's not me being filled with the Holy Spirit behind the wall over there on my own. This is to be cashed out in our relationships together as a church, vertically and horizontally. As a church, we are to be gospel-centered as we speak the gospel to one another, that first great mark. Vertically, as we worship God in our hearts, as 
at church, we give thanks, not in resentment. And then in verse 21, the fourth great mark of being filled with the Spirit, as we give way to the gospel needs of others. So let's turn to our text then, and I want you to see that verse 21 of chapter 5 functions now as the heading from which the rest of verse 22 all the way through to 6 verse 10 is the exposition. The command of God's through the Apostle Paul this morning is this. We are, verse 21, to submit to one another out of fear for Christ. That word submits or submission is mentioned three or four times in our text. It is actually, in the Greek, a military term. It literally means to arrange troops under command. So picture a detachment of the United States Marines in Basra or Helmand province in Afghanistan. You will find the squaddies under the commands of the lieutenant. Then you will find the lieutenant under the command of the captain. The captain will find himself under the command of the major. The major under the command of the brigadier. The brigadier under the command of the major or the major general. And so it goes on. In non-military use, this phrase was used of a voluntary giving up of myself. As I seek now to cooperate with you together under a mutual submission. It's not coerced. It's a willing thing. It's not selfish. It's a loving thing. As for the cause of the gospel, rather than insisting on my way or the highway or my rights or my preferences, we give way for the good of the unity of the church in fear and reverence for Christ. This is the key mark of Christian maturity. This is the key mark of the godly church. This is the church that Christ will bless and that God's will honor. And yet this is a revolutionary charter because our culture's ethic is one of rights, not of responsibilities. This jars For in a self-centered age of expressive individualism, I want things done my way. And I want to be who I want to be. And the reason this is so hard and painful and devastating to us is because ever since the fall, the very essence of sin is that I want to wear the crown. I want authority. And I want power even here in church. Therefore, to give way for the common goods is to cede my crown and to vacate my throne. It is to hand over to the Holy Spirit of Jesus to allow his will through his words and his gospel to rule our lives together. John Stott puts it like this. 
Too much so-called holiness emphasizes a personal relationship with Jesus Christ without any attempt to indicate its consequences in terms of relationship with the people we live and work with. In contrast to such holiness in a vacuum which magnifies experience and minimizes ethics, the apostles clearly spell out Christian duty in concrete situations of everyday life and work. And it is to those concrete areas of life and work that Paul now turns. The command is to be filled with the Holy Spirit as we submit, as we submit to others for the good of our church. And the first area to which Paul turns is to spirit-filled, submissive marriage in verse 22. Sinatra puts it like this, love and marriage, love and marriage, go together like a horse and carriage. And that's Paul's point. The Christian home first is to be a place of harmony and order because God created the institution of marriage to reflect like a mirror the picture of his eternal union with sinners like us. In fact, human marriage is to function like a sermon in which the gospel is expounded. As we look at marriages, we should be seeing an illustration par excellence of Christ and his church. So first, Paul turns to wives, and he says, wives, submit to your husbands as to the Lord. The Bible is clear that men and women at creation and in redemption are equal in status. Both are made in the image of God. Both have equal God-given dignity. So when the arrogant and haughty Sir Henry Higgins wonders why of Eliza women can't become more like a man, he fails to understand the doctrine of creation or of the picture of humanity in the image of God. Yet while men and women in creation and in redemption are equal in status, nevertheless, Paul says they are different in role. And so the creator God vests Leadership in the man, verse 23, for the husband is the head of the wife. The English word husband was first used in 14th century England. And the word husband literally means manager. Actually, careful manager. And we use the word husbandry, therefore, of farming or the word husbandry of rearing livestock. To be a husband is to be a careful steward, a manager of the farm or here of the home. And Christ is the husband of the church in the sense that he is the careful manager of his body, his people, the church for whom he has died and to whom he has given his life. This, of course, grates within our culture For behind third-wave feminism is the idea that there is no such thing as clear gender roles. 
And the mother of third wave feminism was really Simone de Beauvoir, the atheist. And I forget whether she married Camus or Sartre because I always get that wrong. But anyway, she married one of them. And her great cry was this. One is not born, but becomes woman. Her point is that marriage was a prison and womanhood's a social constructs of oppression. So there are to be no distinctions within the home, and all talk of this submitting to the husbandry of the man is a form of abuse. But if you think about it, across the whole of our lives, we submit in various situations all day, every day. So today, I hope you will submit to the speed limits or to the traffic light when it turns red. At work tomorrow, you will submit to your manager on the plane you will submit to the voice of the captain during turbulence as he tells you to put your seatbelt on. At hospital, you will submit to the authority and care of the surgeon. Or worst case scenario, if later on today you discover, or in the middle of the night, that your house is burning down, and then you see the fire department arrive and the ladder appears at the window with the voice, come now into my hands, I need to take you out of the house. I hope you will submit to the arms and the voice and the strength and the direction and the commands of the fire captain, for he has come to save you. And that's the picture here. As the church submits to Christ the Savior with a husbandry of love, so the wife is to submit to the husband because the husband has been placed in the family for the wife's protection and care and nurture and leadership by the gospel of grace. The wife then is not to submit to the husband because he's cleverer or stronger or better or smarter. Speaking personally, I'm none of those things in my own marriage, but rather because he is there to provide and to protect. And so, of course, if the husband demands that the wife does something illegal or immoral, which endangers the safety of the children or others, she isn't to submit because the submission is in the name of Christ. And if there is any abuse in the home of the wife or of the children, of course it's right that there should be an immediate constructive separation and in the past, pastorally, I have had to intervene in situations like that for the protection of the wife and the children from the abuse of the husband who has abandoned the pattern and picture of Christ-centered, godly, gracious, loving leadership. If the wife is told by the husband to stop coming to church, that would be another example where the wife respectfully, yes, Nevertheless, faithfully and firmly must say no, because the gospel of Jesus Christ comes first. Because the reason this charge is so hard and often painful for wives is because we as husbands are selfish and immature. We are insensitive and arrogant and self-absorbed. An elderly lady who had been married for 60 years was asked, so in your 60 years of marriage, have you never once considered divorce? 
She answered indignantly, Divorce? Never. Murder? Often. And I don't quite know how to say this, but um, if you are sitting next to your spouse, uh, you are, statistically speaking, uh, sitting next to the person most likely to murder you. <laughs> so the call of the apostle to the wife is to submit. The call, then, of the apostle to the husband is to mature. We, as husbands, are to allow Christ to establish his throne of love in our hearts. And as we allow the love of Jesus by the Spirit to affect us, we increasingly will pattern our lives after the cross of Jesus Christ. Husbands, love your wives, says Paul, just as Christ loved the church. Just a minute. How did Christ love the church? The answer is he gave up himself for her to make her holy. In December 1936, the then King Edward VIII abdicated the throne in order to marry the love of his life, the American socialite and divorcee Wallace Simpson. Some years later, he was reflecting on marriage and on his abdication as the King of England. And he said this, of course, the fact that I abdicated the throne for the woman I love does have one advantage. In an argument, it is to say, but darling, I gave up my throne for you. And that is to be the pattern of Christ-centered, spirit-filled husbanding. We are to submit to our wives in the sense that we give way to their needs as the wife submits to our role as husbands. Just as Christ gave up all for his church, I am to give up all for her. For at marriage, we are superglued together and the two become one. And if this argument of give it up because of the pattern of the cross doesn't quite work on us, Paul now tries a second tactic to obstinate husbands. It is the logic of this. At marriage, the equation goes one plus one equals one. So there is a selfish reason to serve our wives with Christ-centered, God-glorifying, spirit-filled humility. Not only because it's the right thing to do patterned after the cross, but because it's the selfish thing to do in the sense that she is your own body. There's a sense in which if we abuse her, we are engaging in self-harm. For at marriage, God superglued us together, and the equation of one plus one now equals one. The devoted husband then will willingly give way and yield to the needs of his wife. Even when she's emotional, or witchy, or tired, or bossy, or unreasonable, or harsh, or critical, my motive will be one of cross-shaped, spirit-filled, Christ-honoring love. As in the name of Jesus, I see that Jesus still loves me when I'm like that to him.
and so I must give way to her needs in a grace-shaped, gospel-centered way. And by the way, this is why divorce is always so devastating. The equation is one plus one equals one. God has superglued us together. I've got a visual aid, actually, this morning. Um, two pieces of paper. Uh, let's say that's the man and that's the woman. Earlier on this morning, I, I superglued them together. One, one plus one has now made one. And then in divorce, what happens is that because the equation is one plus one equals one, both will be destroyed. So here's what happens. You see, as you try now to pull apart this equation of one plus one, you can see both are being radically damaged and destroyed. So therefore, working on this pattern of God-honoring, Christ-centered, spirit-filled marriage isn't just an academic idea. It is because we need to invest in our marriages for the good of the other, for the care of our children, for the good of the gospel and our witness to the world. When we don't invest and it ends this way, and there'll be some I know, pastorally speaking, who can attest to this in their own lives, the result is damage, destruction, and harm. Submit to your husbands, and husbands, submit in love to the needs of your wife. Next, uh, Paul turns to the area of parenting, spirit-filled, submissive parenting. And I'm struck that the command is very short, just one verse. Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. It's a short command, just one verse, and I also notice it's addressed to fathers in the first instance. And the reason for this is that the father in particular is responsible before God and will answer to him for the parenting and the spiritual temperature in the home. Indeed, according to the literature, um, when a father is engaged spiritually, the children will have what is called sticky faith. But when it's the mother who's engaged in a way that the father is not engaged, the literature suggests the children will abandon the faith. This is back to where we've just been. The husband is the manager, the carer, and the leader of the home. Don't exasperate your children. That is to say, don't make them angry. Don't provoke them to bitterness. It's very possible in fathering to engage in a pattern of parenting that is unreasonable and harsh, constantly coming down on the children like a ton of bricks. The purpose of fathering is not to maintain power in the home, rather like the father in Mary Poppins, the sovereign of Cherry at Lane, I'm not to be the sovereign, omnipotent ruler of the home, ruling the roost by the authority of my fist through harsh discipline. Rather, the husbandry of the father is to be there to nurture the little precious souls of these children into a gospel-shaped, Christ-centered life. We're not there to crush them or to insist that they fall into order but to raise them in the love and fear of Christ. The word discipline, actually, that Paul uses here is the word from which we get the word pediatrics. The word denotes an upbringing 
or a training or an instruction or a discipline for correction. The pediatric doctor is doing all of those things. The purpose then of Christian parenting is not to produce beautifully behaved, moral little children like the Von Trapps, but rather to nurture precious souls in a grace-shaped, gospel-centered way. And as they live under the merciful instruction of the earthly father, they are to see the merciful instruction of the heavenly father. Yet around us, the whole of our culture seeks to undermine parenting, and in particular, fatherhoods. This is key to Marxist ideology, because at the heart of Marxist ideology is the idea that actually children don't belong to the parents, but to the state's And so it's no surprise that at the heart of Black Lives Matter, which is really a Marxist and disruptive organization, that their key aim, if you go to their websites, is the destruction of the nuclear family. And through race-critical theory, the Trojan horse enters in. All around us, the family is under attack. And without us realizing in the public schools, Children are being indoctrinated by radical left teachers who are dismantling the Christian idea of authority, of sexual faithfulness as transgenderism, homosexuality, and pansexuality is advanced. Fathers, be careful and know what is being taught in the schools. Be careful about giving your children smartphones. Be careful with whom they are centering their lives around or associating with, protect your children and raise them in the fear and instruction of the Lord. And as fathers engage with mothers in this nurture of these souls, in a faithful Christ-centered way, the command then to the children is to obey your parents. And Paul quotes the Old Testament. It's Deuteronomy 5, verse 16. Honor your father and mother, that it may go well with you in the land It's the only commandment in the Old Testament that is accompanied with a promise. Kids, obey your parents so that it might go well with you in the land. What's all that about? And it's this. The land of promise is entered through the gospel of grace. And the parents, particularly the father, is to be the primary teacher of the gospel of grace. So if the kids depart from the teaching of the father as he teaches the gospel of grace, then actually the child falls under judgment and can never end in the land of grace. This is why, fathers, we mustn't exasperate our children with harsh discipline that makes them rebel or turn away from the gospel. We teach with a spirit-filled, gracious, Christ-centered gospel so that they may be nurtured in the fear and love of Christ because as parents, we are the primary evangelists and disciples of our children. We don't farm it out to Zach and his team. We have the responsibility primarily of raising our children. So kids, no parent is perfect, but God has placed your parents over you. Obey your parents, listen to your parents, follow the teaching of your parents, that you might live under the authority of God 
and know the gospel of grace for the land of blessing, heaven itself, that God has prepared for you. And then the last area Paul turns to is to spirit-filled, submissive employments. This may look like a gear change as we move now, if you like, from the home to the workplace. But don't forget that in the ancient world, before the Industrial Revolution, the home <clears throat> was the center of socioeconomic activity. It was actually the place we did church as well. So as Paul talks about the home, <clears throat> it's the home church and the place of employments. Verse 5, slaves obey your earthly masters with respect and fear and with sincerity of heart, just as you would obey Christ Obey them, not only to win their favor when their eye is on you, but like slaves of Christ, doing the will of God from your heart, serve wholeheartedly as if you were serving the Lord, not men, because, verse 8, you know that the Lord will reward everyone for whatever good he does, whether slave or free. At the time that Paul is writing, around about a third of people across the Roman Empire are slaves. Some were prisoners of war, others were abandoned children, trafficked into slavery. Others were people who had been plunged into poverty and in order to pay back debt had become uh, bond slaves. In the ancient world, Roman slaves were chattel. They had no rights. Aristotle said a slave is a living tool and pagan philosophers taught that the slave was a kind of possession with a soul. Paul calls upon these slaves to obey their earthly masters as they would Christ. Verse 7, the slave is to render service with goodwill as to the Lord and not to man. Well, it's said when the cat's away, the mice will play. Paul says not the Christian mice. There will be sincerity of heart Literally, singleness of mind. The picture is of integrity. And the definition of integrity is what I do when no one is watching. There should be for the Christian no sense of, oh, here comes the boss, as quickly I get back to work, having been watching social media for the last 45 minutes. The point is the boss is watching. The heavenly boss is always watching. Ultimately, I serve the Lord Jesus Christ. This isn't blanket obedience again if the earthly master from HR says, wear the rainbow lanyard. My own view is no Christian can. If the HR resource system says, well, you need to misgender the person if they request you to do that here at school, my own view is no Christian can possibly do so. So it's not that we're going to be slaves of whatever management demands, but we are to be gospel slaves as we serve Jesus through the middle management of my earthly boss as I seek to honor Christ by honoring them. And therefore, this Christian at work will engage in excellence. In actual fact, the talk will be that the Christian is the best type of slave at all. Imagine the talk at the golf club in the ancient world, not that there were any, but just imagine. Um, oh, you're looking for a worker? Well, I'll tell you what, 
I, I think what you should do, Jeremy, um, why don't you employ one of those Christians? A Christian, employ a Christian. Yes, I've got a few slaves in my company, and the Christians are the best slaves of all. They're always working, never grumbling, never whining, never being divisive. Whatever I ask them to do, they obey in a loving, humble, obedient, cooperative way. In fact, I've just promoted three of those Christians into senior management in my firm. If I were you, seriously, I would definitely employ a Christian. That should be how it is for us at work. Then Paul turns lastly from, if you like, the union to management's Verse 9, the Christian employer. The Christian employer is never to be spiteful or cruel. He mustn't be a little Hitler or an autocrat or an authoritarian or make threats. And the reason is because both slave and free are equal in the eyes of God their maker and God their redeemer. In Christ there is no slave or free. We are one in Christ. So this Christian master, as he now engages with his slaves, is to be the model employer. And the talk, I guess, then, down at the bar as the Christian slave gets talking to another slave is, if I were you, I would try and get a job in my firm, in my company, because our employer, um, he, he's a Christian, and the difference is extraordinary in the love and the grace that he uh, entertains and engages us, there have been no whippings or threats. There has been no abuse. The manager is amazing. I love being his slave. Yet so often Christians in managements are obsessed by the profit margin or the sales targets. And here in corporate America and capitalistic America, we actually dehumanize people in the corporate machine. There'll be some here in management. Do we remunerate our employees properly? Do we train them properly? Do we provide them with the right benefits and vacation time? Or do we crush them with threats and unrealistic demands? And of course, this applies to how we operate as a church in the sense that we ought to be model in this area. There should be no threats against members of staff or demands that go against the gospel of grace. No manipulation of people in our own employment here because if we engage like that, we're not spirit-filled or Christ-honoring and we cannot expect the blessing of God on our church. For in the gospel we have one master, and the master became a slave. He is the God who took the place of the bond slave as he wrapped the towel around his waist and washed our feet. But not just our feet, as we prepare for Holy Week, he takes the cross and goes to the agonies of Calvary where he takes our shame and guilt and the full punishment that we all deserve and as he gives us his perfection for free
by his grace. By the time we get to the end of this section, Paul really has wound up. The point, though, is we are to be a spirit-filled, Christ-centered church. Whether that's in marriage, as the wife willingly submits to the husband's, as the husband willingly submits to the needs of his precious wife. Whether that's in the wider family, as the parents, particularly fathers, submit to the needs of their children, as the children submit to the authority of the father. Or whether it's in the workplace, as the slave submits as to Christ, to the authority of the master but as the master, in fear of Christ, honors and submits to the needs of the slave. This is a beautiful picture of the radical transformation that the Holy Spirit brings. Jesus has died on the cross to create a new humanity of unity and of order, and therefore to be spirit-filled will mean we keep the peace of this new humanity in unity and order, and we do it out of fear of Christ. Let's pray. A moment then to consider what God has said to us today before I lead us in prayer. Paul says, be imitators of God as beloved children and walk in love just as Christ also loved you and gave himself up for us, an offering and a sacrifice to God. Father, your word convicts us of our sin and selfishness of our arrogance, and we ask for your forgiveness. Your word demands that we live in a spirit-filled, Christ-honoring, other-person-centered, gospel-shaped way, and we ask you to make us that. Enable us, Father, to maintain harmony and unity in this precious new people you have created through the saving death and mighty resurrection of our Lord Jesus Christ, that in our marriages, in our work, and in our church, we might witness the unity and harmony of your gospel together to a lost world. And we ask these things through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen.